Hi, Katie. And welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. (laughs) We've been talking about people from history you may or may not have heard of for 20 episodes. Wow, we're doing well. This is episode 20. Thank you for sticking with us, everyone. Cheers, guys. I've got something very special lined up. Um, But how have you been doing, Dan? Yeah, not too bad. Not too shabby. Except for the fucking fiasco with the laptop we just had. Yeah, we just spent about half an hour trying to get Dan's laptop. Well, he spent half an hour trying to get his laptop working. I'm just sitting here watching ASMR videos while he does that. Because software updates are not worth it, ever. Yeah, never update your software, like especially on like iPhone or iPads. They always like make apps that you've had before just not work. It's like they basically try to break your your device, so you have to buy a new one. Yeah, they hundred <laughs> percent try and break your device. They've even said that with like battery power and stuff. They, yeah, you know they tr- they actually try and break it. Bastards. Next time I speak to you, I'll be a year older. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, so I can't say anything because you're like still youthful glee while I'm just. A <laughs> I'm gonna be thirty-one. <laughs> I feel like that's like now I'm like moving away from the thirty. I'm actually like quite scared. Yeah, yeah. don't. Yeah, go back. It's a trap. Go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a trap. Everyone who's like listening to this, if you're like under the age of thirty, then please save it. Actually, to be honest, though, Dan. 20s were kind of rough. <laughs> like, mental health issues in 20, I think, are like the worst they are. Like, I kind of know. like teenagers was like okay. Yeah. And then like 30s been okay, but like 20s was just like so up and down. I'd say my 30s have been a lot worse than my 20s, just because like, I don't know. There's more like pressure to have like done something by now. Before you're like, I will do yeah. something, but now you're like, I yeah. probably should have done something. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, we've got a podcast, so that's true. Yeah, yeah. I should also apologise if anyone can hear the background noise because it's so hot that I cannot like fully close my window. I would actually <laughs> die. So um, there are people like shouting in the street and stuff. I'm hoping that I'm close enough to the mic to like drown them out. <laughs> uh, what have you been doing this week? What have I been doing this week? Working. <laughs> That's it. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been a pretty rubbish week, really. We went out for food yesterday. That was a that was a thing. That was a treat. Yeah, it was alright. <laughs> we went to the seaside for a couple of days. How was that? Swam in the sea while it was nice and hot. Um, it was really nice. And, dun dun dun, we just put a holding deposit down on a new flat. Ooh, yeah, exciting. So, once, you know, we get to see each other, which we will be doing in a couple of weeks, then you can come over and, you know, socially distance drink in my garden because we have a Ooh. garden. Yeah. Very so, nice. that would be awesome. Should we get started? Because yeah. it's, it's not like a super long, long one, but. It's long enough that we should probably get started. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so good. here's a little change up. I'm not going to ask you, have you ever heard of? Because it would be absolutely ludicrous if you'd not heard of this person. Instead, I'm going to ask you a different question. Okay, go So, go. Dan, what's your favourite Shakespeare play? Othello. Othello, that's an interesting choice. My favourite Shakespeare play is Hamlet. 
Ah, I do classic. obviously have a podcast about Macbeth, so that has become one of my more favorite ones. And my favorite comedy is Much Do About Nothing. Yeah, solid choices. And on that note, today I'll be talking about William Shakespeare. Woo! And I have to apologize in advance because I'm not going to, re- like, there's no big reveals here. You know, it's not like, oh, you thought you knew nothing about him, but I've discovered this great truth, whatever. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. We just don't know much. Like, there's stuff that we can kind of infer from the times. Mm -hmm. So that's what most of this is going to be. And before I even start, I have to give the biggest, biggest, like, shout out out to the book Shakespeare by Bill Bryson, because this is what most of this is based on. Because it's just one of the best modern biographies of Shakespeare. It's under 200 pages long. He doesn't like, he doesn't guess anything. A lot of yeah. people would like kind of use their imagination to talk about um, things or, or they infer like a bit too much. Mm. Um, he doesn't. He basically just tells you everything that we definitely know. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Cool. Okay, so everyone visualize. The famous painting of Shakespeare that we all know and love, which is in the National Portrait Gallery in London. It was their first acquisition in 1856. And it's obviously of a white man with dark hair, with an earring and black clothes and a ruff. That's a pretty good earring. It's got to be said, it's a pretty strong earring. (laughs) Strong look. I mean, it's a look that I really wish more people would adopt. Um, Of course... We all probably know by now that we don't know for sure that this is a painting of William Shakespeare. Um, People have inferred it from the fact that, one, the type of collar that was worn in the painting was popular between 1590 and 1610, which is when he was at his height of his popularity. And the fact that there was a portrait done of this person is enough to show that this person must have been like worthy of a portrait. Hmm. Also, the earring was like a very bohemian look, but it was also like an advantageous look. So it must have been someone with some sort of um, money behind them. So, yeah, it's a very pirate. Yeah. Drake okay. and Raleigh were both like painted yeah, yeah, yeah. with an earring. So this is another thing. Also, the clothes are black and it was very expensive to dye your clothes black. Mm. So... That's oh yeah, because like thing. red's the cheapest dye, isn't it? That's why the British Army used it on their uniforms. But also, apparently. just like most people, just have beige colours, like yeah, just like light colours because it was too expensive to dye them at all. So those are a couple of reasons why we think that it might have been Shakespeare. There are only two other quote unquote original artworks of him, and one is incredibly mediocre, and the other one was done years after his death. So. It's a complete yeah, mystery what he actually looked made like. Up. <laughs> we know very little about his personal life. And we only have 14 words in his own hand writing. Oh, wow. So six times of his name, William <laughs> Shakespeare, and by me on his will. Oh, so he didn't even write his own will? Um, no. No, his, his, you know, lawyer or whatever you call yeah. it back then would have done it. The spelling of his name... Is different every time he wrote it. And the way that we write it now is none of those spellings. Wait, did this guy even <laughs> exist? I am beginning we'll get to, to question that. it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't worry, we're getting there. <laughs> right at the end. Um, so yeah, um, there's quite a good story and I love this story. So in the early 1900s, 
an American couple called Charles and Hulda Wallace moved to London for some reason. I don't know. No, I don't think anyone knows why. Some sort of madness. Um, to to look at all the Shakespeare records they could, the rolls and rolls of Shakespeare records, to try and like find find more instances of him. And in 1909, they found a record from 1612, which was a dispute between a wig maker and his son-in-law, in which Shakespeare had been a lodger at the wig makers in 1604. And this mentions Shakespeare. 24 times and has his sixth and last found signature so this is like an amazing find obviously but since then we haven't found any more signatures of hers it's also because it was like a testimony Mm. um about what was going on it's like in his own words as well not like his handwriting but spoken yeah so that's another great thing about this piece here but apart from that we don't know very much (laughs) not knowing much is like not unusual though yeah one, this is a long time ago. Two, we had the Great Fire of London in 1666. Things were lost. Three, like, yes, we know lots about, like, royalty of that time, but not so much of the, like, lower down, like, people. Yeah. And he didn't start off, like, rich and famous. So, not unusual. So let's start off where he started off, at birth, obviously. Um... So, Shakespeare was born on the 23rd of April, 1564. Um, one of my favourite facts about this is that, um, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but we adopted the Georgian calendar mm. in 1580. So he's born on the 23rd of April, like 20 years before that. But his birthday would have like moved to the 3rd <laughs> of May if he was actually born on the 23rd of uh, April. So that's quite a good fact. Um we don't actually know for sure that he was born on the 23rd of April, which is interesting. So his he was, like, baptised on the 26th of April, which was, like, the next day that he could have been baptised or something. Okay. So it's like, so, so people infer that he was born on the 23rd because, like, they couldn't have been baptised. Like, you have to baptise them on the next, like, available day or something. Yeah, okay, then. So, they infer that it's the 23rd. Also, because he died on the 23rd of April, it creates, like, this nice symmetry. And because it's St. George's Day. Yeah, there was a lot of disease at the time he was born. It was the worst, like, big plague they'd had in a long time. Only, uh, so 16% of infants in England died, even in non-plague years during this time. So... One of the his greatest feats was staying alive during his well like done. his birth. Elizabeth had been on the throne for five years when he was born. His father was John Shakespeare, who was born in 1530. He came to Stratford as a young man. When I say Stratford, I mean Stratford upon Avon, not Stratford as in Westfield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the Olympic Park. He was not born in the Olympic Park. This is Stratford upon Avon. Um, John, his father, was popular and well-respected in the town. He was actually appointed as the town's high bailiff in oh, 1568. Really? But he did have like a slightly shady side. In the yeah. 1980s, it was discovered that he was into like money lending, which is really illegal, and also traded in wool, which is apparently also illegal for some really? reason. I know. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> was it like why. just wool in general, or was it just not his wool? I have no, I know. I just think wool in general was like really? illegal. 
It's so weird. It's like, weird. Can you imagine like a, me taking a ball of wool into like a, a tavern? Being like, you want this under the table? Like, um, <laughs> so, like, as a bailiff, so he, was, so he was like a deck. He was the high bailiff, which is, yeah, like, so the, top, he, the top one. So he'd, like, get the money off people that was, like, owed, and then he'd lend it to other people. And also, would he be that popular if he's, like, just... But apparently he was. He was, like, to be that a town high bailiff, because he wasn't, like, this is, like, um, like a voluntary role. Yeah. It's kind of like being like the mayor or something. Because like, his as profession, he was like a glove maker, like a light leather maker. Okay. So this wasn't his profession. This was like an extra thing. I'm guessing he was popular until they made him a bailiff. And then, then his popularity probably went down a bit. Well, funny you say that, because in 1576, he withdrew from public life. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we're not really sure why, but apparently he was not mentioned after that. Until his death. Um, his mother, as in William Shakespeare's mother, was Mary Arden. She was from a comfortable farming family. Shakespeare had seven siblings, four sisters and three brothers. Um, not all of them made it to adulthood, unfortunately. Okay. It's usually assumed that he went to a local grammar school called King's New School. But we don't know for sure. There's no records. Obviously, the records have been lost for years. But it's like... It's probable because most of the boys in the town of certain age and certain, like, standing went to that school and it was open to, like, everyone. The school day was probably very long, like, 6am to 6pm long. Jeez. Yeah, six days a week, apart from Sunday. Wow, that's hardcore. That's that's absolutely ridiculous. Let's go down Macarin. This school in particular also had, like, um, a really highly paid headmaster... And I, I can't remember the exact figure, but he was better paid than the headmaster of Eton at the time. Really? Yeah, oh, so I guess it was, like, quite a... It's very, like, disciplined, the yeah. school. Does this school still exist? Oh, I'm not sure, actually. Um, are they, are we know the name of it, so I don't know. But um, look it up. some it iteration, maybe? It's called King's New School. Yeah. Is a grammar school and an academy in Australia it still exists? Well, it's an academy as well. Wow, they fucked that up. <laughs> Don't get me started on academies. Okay, They've so... Only start, they only admitted girls since uh, 2013. Wow. This is a pretty cool looking school. It's all, like, jettied with the timber. It's very cheap looking. Timber. It's very cool. Oh, very nice. I, I look forward to going to see it when I get to... <laughs> I want to go to Sheffield Funhaven soon and go and, like, look at his grave and go, ooh. Um, okay, so... He probably learned a great deal of Latin. Most of the lessons were taught in Latin, but didn't learn much maths, history, or geography. Oh, man, so nothing useful. No, not really. Um, He probably left school around 15 as well. Um, So from about age 7 to 15. Um, He turns up in... When I say he turns up, what I mean is he's mentioned in a document. I'm going to use that term (laughs) a lot. So he turns up in November of 1982 when he applies for a marriage license. So... Everyone knows that, that Shakespeare is married to Anne Hathaway. However, he does not apply for a marriage license for Anne Hathaway. He applies for one called Anne Waterley. Okay. So this is a complete mystery. So some people say that maybe the clerk made a mistake. So there's like another man named Waterley, like that same day had applied for something. So maybe he like messed it up. And there's other times like that he could have messed up. So the clerk maybe just made a mistake. 
Um, and he just—it should have been Hathaway, but he just says Waterly. Or maybe Will was dating two Anns, which seems a bit out there. Yeah, but it could have been. Either way, Will and Anne married when he was eighteen years old, and she was eight years his senior. So I guess she was twenty-six. Oh wow! And the bond was forty pounds, which is a huge amount of money. It's unusually expensive. So a bond is when, like, they can get married in the church. Okay. So they pay it to, like, the church or whatever. And some people say that this is because she was pregnant at the time. Um, But that wasn't particularly unusual for a woman to be pregnant and get married. Hmm. So I'm not really sure why it was so expensive. Um, We don't know much about her as a person. Or even if her name was Anne, because in her father's will, she's called Agnes. Agnes Hathaway. Yeah, so actually it could just be that Anne was a kind of nickname, a shortened version of the name. Um, And her gravestone says she was 67 when she died, so we can infer her birthday from that, but we don't actually have her birth record. So how do do we know how they met, him and his his older woman? Absolutely not. No. I mean, she was from a prosperous, like, Stratford family, so yeah. just, like, around the area, I guess. Just hanging um, about, just down the pub. Yeah, down the... Oh, no, I can't think of a good Shakespeare Ian. joke. Down <laughs> the old tavern. The wool-trading tavern. Um, so we have three... They have three children. We have Susanna in 1583, and then twins called Judith and Hamnet. Hamnet? Hamnet. Hamnet. Yeah. In 1585. So, we know pretty much nothing else about their relationship. We know that they were married until his death, so they probably had some sort of, like, relationship that was worth him hanging on to until his death. And he did send a lot of his wealth back to Stratford when he was in London. So, we don't have any, like... They didn't come back to London with him? We don't know that. So, some people say she probably did like go to London with him every now and again or whatever but we, we actually don't know for sure some people love to speculate about like this poem that poem this play that play this line whatever we don't know for sure so I'm not gonna say this or that because we don't know so how did a young and poor young father become Shakespeare that we know this is what we're trying to find out here so some say <sighs> There was like this acting troupe that came through Stratford. They were called the Queen's Men, this acting troupe. And they passed through Stratford and they were like a man down. And so like Will went with them. And in this was in like 1587 and like learned acting and writing and stuff. But we don't know this for sure. <laughs> we know that they were, we know that they were like around the area. And there may have been, like, a brawl between two of them where one of them had to, like, drop out. But we don't know he went with them, for sure. Okay. So, and then we come to what was called the Lost Years, which is really great. So the Lost Years are 1585 to 1592. So there's seven years in Shakespeare's life where we have no idea where he was or what he was doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which is just great. Um, which is with Nolan and our years. He was just pissed. He was just pissed all time. <laughs> Let me talk about London for a little bit. So London in 1585 was d- divided into about 100 or so parishes, many of them quite tiny, which is similar to what it is now. The, similar, the city was still surrounded by the London Wall. 
and it was so small that you could be cross it in by foot in an hour. Wow. I know. So if you think about how long it takes you in an hour, London, you could walk from maybe the Museum of London in St. Paul's to what, Waterloo in an hour. Yeah. So that's like, think about how big it is now. You could not cross London in an hour on foot. The city's gates were locked at at dusk and didn't open until dawn. But there is some speculation that there was like leniency on this because in winter, if you were at like a performance or a play outside of the city walls and it ended like after dark and you wouldn't be allowed in, there would be a lot of people like not allowed. So there's some speculation that there was like leniency on this during the winter months. Wait, is this just like the city though? The city of the London. The city so, of London. Yeah, as yeah. so basically like East London, London. where all the banks are now. Yeah, so, uh, like, think of St. Paul's area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Thames at that time was full of, like, sea life. There was shrimp, flounders, eels, trout, and then on one occasion a whale got stuck between the, like, arches of London Bridge. A whale. That's so cool. Um, You probably know this, or maybe you don't, but London Bridge was the only bridge at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. The bridge had shops on and, like, other buildings. Oh, yeah, I've seen, like, uh, yeah. Like a rendering of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, I love that. That's one of my favourite facts about London. They had like shops, they had houses, and even yeah. had a palace called Nonesuch House on it. It's pretty like, mad. So think cool. about, I mean, London Bridge isn't like in the exact same place it is now, but it's pretty, it's like slightly east, but yeah. it's, it's pretty much the same place. Like Imagine. that London, the London Bridge, like the, the American or the Americans, I don't know how it happened. They bought a version of the bridge and took it. That was a rubbish version. <laughs> they wanted that one they wanted the one with all the crap on it yeah they wanted the one with like houses and shops were so close together that they were ba- like you could basically only just about walk between them yeah god that would yeah. be amazing to like walk I know down. I want to get back that's time. definitely on the, uh, on the it's time it's on the tra- list. time travel list yeah for <laughs> sure so this was also the time when printed work started appearing um, and like quote unquote normal people could afford them so it wasn't just like the really high up it was more like you know, this kind of bourgeoisie, like middle class. Thing. Yeah, yeah. St. Paul's Cathedral was both church and marketplace. Uh, vagrants peed in corners. People built fires. People sold stuff. There was book binding. People got drunk. Like, it was just like where people hung out to get out of the rain. People could walk through it. Good times. Um, It's not the same St. Paul's as there now. Yeah, I was about because... to say, different building. Yeah, so... um. It's been rebuilt. Obviously, Christopher Wren rebuilt it, but it's it's a similar placing. Yeah. Um, we don't know when Shakespeare came to London. So he he disappeared, like I said, in these seven years between 1585 and 1592. So at some point, he during these years, he turned up in London. It was during this period that, yeah, he left Stratford and established himself as a playwright. So... A lot of people have speculated on where he was. Some people say maybe he was working as a schoolmaster in the country, or maybe he was at sea, or he was abroad, or he came to London and became a Catholic for some bizarre reason. (laughs) People think maybe he was an underground Catholic. There's a mention of a William Shakeshaft in some like household accounts of a prominent Catholic. So people okay. think maybe that was him. But if that was him, that's a really bad alias, for yeah, one yeah. thing. And also, Shakeshaft wasn't a particularly uncommon name. Yeah. In, like, I think it was Lancashire or Yorkshire. So... 
Oh yeah. yeah, I buy the travel one. I mean, he wrote about like so many different places. Well, that's play, what a so. lot of people also have said. So people he say was... that he mentions the sea a lot. Yeah. Um, people say that he's you know he wrote about Italy, he wrote about France, he wrote about da da da. He also has a lot of French and a lot of Italian. Yeah. Like he can speak so or write at I least. I reckon that's where he was. So that's, that's why what I wish he a was. A lot of people just said. Good time in Italy. So then, what happens in 1588 is that something history gets changed forever by a big event, and that is the Spanish Armada. Those of you who don't know about the Spanish Armada, you should look it up. It's an absolutely crazy story. Um, again, it's the whole Catholic Protestant thing. Elizabeth beheads her cousin Mary. The Catholics are outraged. The Spanish decide to retaliate, but. The English fleet is way too quick and small for them. Their cannons don't do much. And England obliterates them, basically. Also, a bunch of uh, the ships just got wrecked on the way, didn't they? Had, like... On the way back. Oh, I was on the way back. Yeah, on the way back. So they went like up to Scotland and around to Italy. And when they got to Scotland, there was like a load of like um, bad weather. And they lost like more than 50% of their men or something. So... This like had a boost in like English patriotism in a lot of writing, which would have definitely affected Shakespeare because that's when he started writing his histories. So like right. the Henrys and the Johns and the Richards. Uh, I say Johns, but there's only one John. <laughs> um, this is another interesting fact about the Catholic thing. So John Shakespeare, basically more than a hundred years after John Shakespeare's death, this is his dad, people were like in the Shakespeare's house and they find in like the rafters of the house a note that said last will of the soul where he declared that he was actually like a secret catholic because obviously in elizabethan times it was dangerous to be a catholic it was weird that you could like pay to not go to church or something weird okay like and they raised like a lot of money from this where you could like i don't know but so this led to a lot of people to believe that john was a catholic and therefore will was a catholic but also there's no evidence to suggest he was religious at all. There's no mention of the Holy Ghost in his works. There's no mention of like other significant words that would indicate that yeah. he was maybe religious. So, again, I'm sorry, guys, but we just don't know. So, at some point he comes to London, so he's about to pop up in London. We only have... Two or three sketches of what London's playhouses look like in Shakespearean time. Two or three. I'm not even joking, this is crazy. So one of them is of the the second globe, so the new globe, which was in 1613, the first one burnt down. So we've got this one sketch of the globe. Um, written record is not very enlightening either. There are some visitors' accounts, ED diaries and letters. We do have something, a very interesting record, however, of a man named Philip Henslow. He was a proprietor of the Rose and Fortune Theatres, and he has like a diary which detailed the day-to-day runnings of a playhouse, including all the numbers of plays he put in, like um, actors, wardrobe, props, everything. So this is like a really rich source. Um... And that particular source actually helped build the modern globe that's there now, because it was meant to be like a replica. By the 1580s, when Old Bill turned up in London, theatres were dotted everywhere around the outskirts and continued to spread. 
most of the well i'm gonna say actually all the theaters made money not only off like plays but also other things such as animal baiting for income because they just didn't make enough of plays and the globe was the only theater to not use animal baiting like it just did plays like bit of cockfight. Are we talking about like bear fighting and stuff? I think we're talking about dog fighting, right? Like Oh boy. But That's pretty grim. It's grim. But the globe didn't, so we can all be happy with that. Um Yay. obviously all the female parts were played by boys all the way up to the sixteen sixties. Plays were strict- strictly regulated. There was a guy called the Master of R- Revels and he licensed all of the dramatic works. I want that job. <laughs> uh, it sounds really fun. Plays were all performed at two PM. Which is, okay. like, so That's bizarre. Right. Since people usually work from, like, 6 till 6, somehow people still manage to get time to go and see plays. I mean, <clears throat> like, lots of people do. Playbills were handed out in the street during the day. So people could, so people <laughs> could know what was on. Those who wished to stand could pay a penny for their admission. And those who wished to sit and have a cushion paid more. Um, money was dropped into a box when you entered. And that box was taken to a special room for safekeeping. And what was that room called? The box office. Yeah. So that's where we get it from. That's probably my favourite fact of the whole podcast, <laughs> so we can probably just stop now. Um, yeah, so you could buy treats like apples and pears um, and tobacco for your pipe. Um, there was no set or lighting or curtain. Costumes were very elaborate and very valued. We know this from a sketch of a performance of Titus Andronicus. So we have this like sketch someone made of the elaborate costumes. Plays were variable in length, as we know. Um, so his longest play is Hamlet, and his shortest play is Comedy of Errors. Mm-hmm. And if you ran Hamlet like without any intervals, it would be four hours and twenty minutes. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty I epic. mean, I've seen Hamlet a couple of times. I saw it maybe most recently about three years ago. But they do cut it down. So really, it's supposed to be four acts, but this was three. And so they kind of trim it a little bit. Mm. Most of the time nowadays, they trim it. But back then, it could be that you were standing for four hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, no one's seeing that on their lunch break, are they? No, I, yeah, it's... I mean, they wouldn't get out until half six. Um... Blood and gore was often used, like, using animal parts, like, hearts and stuff. Like, animal yeah. blood. Um, that was done a good job of that. I mean, like, yeah, I'd love to have seen how they did the uh, the King Lear removing the eyes thing. Get some pig eyes. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> Grim. But also <laughs> awesome. Um, between the opening of the Red Lion in 1657 to 75 years later when the Puritans basically closed all the theatres down, um, playhouses in London attracted around 50 million visitors. Really? That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. So plays, writers of plays, I only sold them for about £10 a play, and then it belonged to like the theatre or the troupe, as mm. opposed to like you retaining the rights to the play. New plays were needed like constantly. So... There were a lot of writers who were churning out plays. I mean, this is one of the reasons why he wrote so many. Oh, I was just like, I'm like a very And Shakespeare remained an actor as well throughout his professional life. So this is another reason why he gained, like, notoriety. Oh, he's um, a proper Kenneth Branagh. That's why Kenneth Branagh loves him so much, isn't it? Yeah, he's he wants to be him. <laughs> um, he was a specialist for undemanding roles. So one of the ones he was famous for is the ghost in Hamlet, because it's not there very often. Um... <laughs> We're not sure 
how and when Shakespeare became like famous. I guess superstar. We know one instance of not Henry the sixth, but like a Harry the sixth mentioned in March of fifteen ninety two, which was a successful performance. A dying man also quoted him that year, um, in like print. Mm. So he was obviously known to like people by at least fifteen ninety two. Unfortunately, in fifteen ninety two, this closed for two years because why? Because of the plague. So that's close for two years. Like now. Yeah. <laughs> but two years, though. I mean, I mean uh, we've done nearly a year. Yeah. So, um, we have no idea what he did during this time. He may have been in Italy, as he wrote plays set in Italy after that. He was living it up. In April 1593, Shakespeare published a narrative poem Venus and Andeus, which he dedicated to Henry Risley, the Earl of Southampton, okay. who was bisexual, yeah. apparently. This was the greatest public success of his career. Um, the next year, a follow-up poem, The Rape of Lucretia, was also dedicated to him, and the only words we have in his own voice are these dedications. So I thought it would be very interesting for me to just read one of the dedications. You do. Okay, so this is the dedication in The Rape of Lucretia. To the right right honourable Henry Risley, Earl of Southampton and Banner of Thitchfield, the love I dedicate to your lordship is without end, whereof this pamphlet without beginning is but a superfluous mo- moiety. The warrant I have of your honourable disposition, not the worth of my untutored lines, makes it assured of acceptance. What I have done is yours. What I have to do is yours. Being part in all I have devoted yours. Where my worth greater, my duty would so greater. Meantime, as it is, is it is bound to your lordship, to whom I wish long life still lengthened with all happiness. Your lordships in all duty, William Shakespeare. So, what can we infer from that? Well, we know nothing of their relationship. <laughs> People have used this to infer things about their relationship, romantic or otherwise, but we actually don't know anything. We don't know if they even met. Like, I mean, they must have done if he dedicated both his narrative poems to him, but... Uh, like he could have just been, uh, uh, what do you call it? Paying him, you know. That is what some people think. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, okay, then after that, after these two narrative poems, it was all plays for Shakespeare, so... Maybe he wrote those narrative poems while the play the theatres were shut. Uh, I don't know for sure. Then something very significant happened in 1593 for Shakespeare. This could have changed the course of history. And what happens then? Marlowe dies. So a lot of people say that if Marlowe hadn't died, he would have become more famous than Shakespeare. Yeah, but he's involved in this like knife fight in Deptford, <laughs> I think. And he, it's a cool like, way to go. He like dies. This really helped Shakespeare's career, to be honest. Post-plague, there are a lot less acting troops, and Shakespeare would spend the rest of his career working with just one, and they were called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Um, That's kind of a downgrade from the Queen's. Well, they were devoted family men, and they were businessmen. They didn't, like, go and, like, party and do naughty stuff. They would devote to their work, but also to their families, and they seemed to be quite nice (laughs) guys in general. Um, okay, so let's talk about the plays for a second. Um, so 
His playwright career began in 1590, but which play did it start with? Well, we don't know for sure about that either. Some plays, however, we do know were written before certain dates because of events that happened that were mentioned in the plays. For example, Romeo and Juliet speaks of an earthquake 11 years ago, and London had had a small earthquake in 1580, so it might have been that he wrote that in 1591 because of the reference to the earthquake. Oh, interesting. Um, in 1598, a man called Francis M- Meres, I think, published a book called, oh, here's where I failed at Latin, um, <laughs> Pladis Tamia, in which he mentions a number of the plates, four of which had not been mentioned before in print. So this obviously means that they had been written before, 1598, which is really helpful. Um, he also mentions, and that we'll kind of talk about this a little bit, Lover's Labours 1. So most people think that Lover's Labours 1 is an alternative name for Tame of the Shrew, because we don't have a play called Lover's Labours 1. Mm. But then, in, fif- in 1953, a bookseller found an old stock list from 1603, which lists both Lovers Labours One and Taming of the Shrew. Oh, right. Which makes me think they were two different plays, but we don't have Lovers Labours One. So who knows if it will turn up one day. It was a terrible sequel, that's why. (laughs) It it doesn't appear in the first folio by Hemmings and Condell, so we can't really like make any assumptions on that. Just a little thing. They put first Two Gentlemen of Verona, so a lot of people think that's his first play, but we don't have any evidence that how that was his first play. He loved Verona. Can't blame it's a lovely place. Yeah. Uh, some or most of his plays were based on former plays or other works of literature. Um, Hamlet, King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, just to name a few. Some of them, or a very small number of them, seem to be original that includes Twelfth Night, Much Do About Nothing, and The Tempest. Some lines are even almost taken word for word from someone else. For example... Cheeky so this is from... Um, so from Marlowe's um, Tambulane, I think is how you pronounce it, is Hola, you pampered jades of Asia. What can you draw but 20 miles a day? And then, in Henry the Fourth Part Two. And hollow pampered jades of Asia, which cannot go but 30 miles a day. Ah. It's like the same line. Oh, boy. Um, but this is an unusual. They had to churn out, like, so much stuff. Yeah. If he had to write original stuff all of the time, he he just wouldn't have been able to do it. Like, he might not have, like, consciously done it. He might have just, like, read that play and then it just came and happened. <laughs> Pop it in. <laughs> so in terms of, like, how stuff was put on, Acts and scenes and stuff weren't uniform at that time. So, like, some scenes could be... Like, someone, one guy, like, did a different scene every time a new character came on. Whereas Shakespeare doesn't do that. There wasn't any kind of uniformity, but there was one rule. And that was the rule that we call the rule of re-entry. So to make it easier for people to understand where a scene kind of starts and ends... You can go off at the end of a scene and then come straight back on at the beginning of another scene. Okay. So if you... Sometimes there are bits in Shakespeare's plays where it's like there's a tiny character like with a with a small speech or there's like somebody goes off halfway through a scene just randomly so they can come on in the ne- at the beginning of the next scene. 
And that's why, because they had this really random rule of re-entry, it, makes, it actually makes some of the scenes make a bit more sense. <laughs> Be like, oh, that's why he did that. Yeah, and oh, acts, so like breaks and acts wasn't introduced until like the end of his career. So if you needed to pee during Hamlet, you are in trouble. Um, yeah, so like I said before, the length of plays are very varied. Hamlet speaks 1,495 lines in his aforementioned play, and that's like nearly all of the lines in Comedy of Errors. So that's like how different those two plays are. Yeah, he was obviously really prolific, but not without flaws. Nearly every play has at least a couple of lines that are completely like we don't know what they mean. So what was he trying to say with this? Like, nearly every single play. He had an extraordinary knowledge of law, medicine, astronomy, and amazing vocabulary as well. He knew some French and Italian, and somebody who's a really sad person counted the number of different words used in all of Shakespeare's plays, and apparently there are 29,066 different words in Shakespeare's plays. Which actually doesn't seem like that many to us. So apparently by the time you hit adulthood, you know 50,000 words as an adult. However, Mm. Bill Bryson does point out that we have more words because of things like technology. So Shakespeare couldn't have known the word computer or keyboard or, you know, microphone or cinematography because they didn't exist. Yeah. Or antibiotics. (laughs) So like, you know, that's... So 29,066 words are still pretty good going. Yeah, it's not too bad. He had the first recorded use of 2,035 words. So some people think that he made these up, but it could have been just the first recorded use of them. But those words include lonely, countless, excellent, critical, and frugal. Oh, wow. Just he count- lonely. He's yeah. like the king of emos. <laughs> he really Amazing. is. Just in black. Um, he also invented some phrases such as one foul swoop, vanish into thin air, and to be in a pickle, which I like. We talked a little bit about his family life earlier, and in 1596, Hamnet, his son, his only son, died at age 11. We don't know the cause of death, but and we don't know how Shakespeare took it, but he did manage to rise to fame quite soon afterwards, or during that time, so... We don't. He probably wasn't in Stratford for that long, if at all. Uh, we have no idea how rich he was. There are estimates between two hundred and seven hundred pounds a year, which would be really high, probably towards like the lower end. Yeah. So in fifteen ninety nine, we see the first written mention of the globe by a Swiss tourist called Thomas Platter, who witnessed a um performance of Julius Caesar on the 21st of September of that year. The globe burnt down in 1613 and was rebuilt which on a, like a very similar site, not like right there. Basically a cannon had fired during a performance that set fire to the thatched roof. <laughs> so it had Brilliant. to be rebuilt. But in these 13 years, so between 1599 when we have the the Swiss tourist and the burning down 13 years later Shakespeare wrote Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, King Lear, Othello, Macbeth, and Antony Cleopatra. So he was pretty busy in those 13 years. Um, He also managed to buy some land in Stratford with his wealth, a plot of land for £320, and some, like, fiefs in corn 
£440, which would give him income. So he's investing his money very wise, everyone. Yeah. Go and put shares in Tesla. So not your typical artistic type. No, he seems to be pretty sensible, which I'm really disappointed about. <laughs> um, no, haven't they like, found his pipe and it's just full of like all the drugs? Which kind of like, there was a mention in the biography, Dan. We are only having facts here. <laughs> I read it somewhere. I can't remember. It would explain the uh, the lines that don't make any sense. That is true. Maybe he was always making his pipe when he wrote this. <laughs> so, on the twenty fourth of March, sixteen eighty three, Queen Elizabeth I first dies, age sixty nine. James I succeeds her, which is what people wanted. People that wanted to, you know, kill her. And he was a very generous patron of drama and watched many plays. He, We know for sure that he saw a Macbeth. And we know also that between the years of him coming to the throne and Shakespeare dying, he, um, the troupe performed for the king 187 times. Mm. Which is a lot. During this time, he wrote some of his best-known tragedies. So we actually think of Shakespeare as an Elizabethan playwright, but his tragedies, most of them, were written during the Jacobean times. Um, so think, you know, Othello, Hamlet, King Lear, they were oh, all yeah. written during this time, Antioch Patra. He also wrote Timon of Athens during this time, which is very difficult, and it looks like it might not be complete, and is barely ever performed now. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, in 1604, James suspended the laws against Catholic mass as well. So that could have been very interesting for William if we believe the, the story about him being Catholic. Shakespeare continued to live frugally in London. His, he held modest lodgings there. And j- between May 1603 and April 1604, theatres were shut again because of the plague. Oh boy. In 1607 and 1608, his brother and mother respectively died. His brother was only 27, but his mother was a ripe old age of 70. We don't know how either of them died, um, but his mother was 70, so that's probably like old age, which is it's really old for Tudor times. Yeah, definitely. Um, so and like his mother was 27. He was working as an actor in London, so I don't know if something went awry there or whether it was plague. Um, we just don't know. So, on the 20th of May, 1609, a volume of his sonnets went on sale for five pence. We're not sure how the publisher actually got these sonnets or how Shakespeare reacted to this. Um, But by 1609, sonnets were kind of out of vogue. (laughs) They were kind of not popular anymore. We don't know when he actually wrote all his sonnets, because you know he's got like a ton of them. But they were employed in Lover's Labour's Lost and Ruby and Juliet, so maybe around that time. Um, Some wonder about what his sonnets were actually for if he didn't want to publish them. Like, we don't know. Some people use the sonnets to talk about his sexuality. We don't know for sure if he was even addressing a man in his sonnets, as a lot of people claim, or if he was addressing the same man or different ones, or if he was addressing a woman. We don't actually know for sure. Near the end of his life, he began to collaborate, probably with a man called George Wilkins in about 1608 on Pericles, or John Fletcher on Two Noble Kingsmen and Henry VIII. And the history of Cardinia, which is Shakespeare's lost play. So Cardinia may have been held by a museum in Covent Garden, 
which went up in flames in 1808 and with it, the manuscript for Shakespeare's last play. So we'll probably never find that. His very last plays were more introverted, so you think Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, Coriolanus, and he stopped writing by 1613. Um, So in 1616, he made some changes to his will. Everyone knows the famous story of him leaving Anne Hathaway his second best bed, um, which some people use as like, oh, he didn't like her that much, but that's like not necessarily true. Firstly, the second best bed is usually the marital bed, because the first best bed would be like the guest bed. Um, And secondly, she was his wife, so she would have got a third of his estate anyway. So it's not like he's leaving her out. It wasn't unusual for wives to be left out of wills because they get a third anyway. So it's only a third. Well, yeah, because the rest goes to like none. So he, it's not unusual for bequests, like personal requests, to be left out. Um, his hand apparently was shaky, so it might have been that he was sick during this time. Not long afterwards, um, on the twenty third of April, sixteen sixteen, William Shakespeare dies. His full inventory of his estate. Uh, would have been sent to London, where it probably perished in the 1666 Great Fire of London. Anne Hathaway dies in August of 1623, just before his first folio is published. Susanna in 1649 and Judith in 1662. Shakespeare's granddaughter died in 1670 and had no children, and that is where his line ends. So there are no living descendants of William Shakespeare. His first folio was published by John Kendall and John Hemmys in 1623. So they are the heroes of the story because they got everything together. So, you asked is there really a William Shakespeare? Well, there are some naysayers. There is a very interesting story about a woman in the 1800s who lived in Ohio called Delia Bacon. And she became obsessed with the idea that Francis Bacon had actually been William Shakespeare, and she moved to England to try and prove it. In 1857, she published The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded, and other people latched onto this idea that Francis Bacon was actually William Shakespeare, including Mark Twain, randomly. Oh, okay. Um, others have also mentioned other names, um, William Stanley, the Earl of Oxford, for example, and, of course, Marlowe. Um, but surely, if this had been true... One of his contemporaries would have told someone who had written something down, or would have been passed down. Marley would have said something. Francis Bacon would have said something. Someone must have let something slip. Um, so it's not none of those like I don't know people are particularly good, you know, alternatives. But one thing we do know about Shakespeare is whoever he was, he was very very important. So. Here are all the facts I know about Shakespeare. Ta-da. Pretty talented. And that's it. That's all we know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you would think like somewhat such like a prolific writer would have recorded more about himself. Nope. He would had those two things a... in his hand and that was it. Done a bit with um, Virginia Woolf and just wrote everything. Or Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. He wrote down thousands of pages, which his wife diligently went through after his life. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I hope that you learnt something, some facts at least, that you can tell at dinner parties. I don't think we'll ever know more about Shakespeare. Anything that we were going to find out would have been lost 
in fires or, you know, degraded or not kept to the right temperature. <laughs> it's a shame, a shame we don't have his lost play. It's a shame that we don't have more... He didn't write letters, it doesn't seem, or at least if he did, we don't have them. And we don't know his lost years, we don't know what his relationship was like with his wife, we don't know if he was a bisexual or if he smoked a lot of tobacco or we don't know what he ate and we don't know how he dressed and we don't even know what he looked like really so this is another like Romulus and Remus one where I'm maybe just apologising that I don't know more <laughs> but um, next time I'll do someone that we know more concrete stuff about <laughs> wow there you go I want to ha- give a big shout out to my parents without whom I would not like Shakespeare this much they even got married on his birthday which is adorable oh um, that is cute they took me to a lot of plays as a child, and yeah, I saw my first Hamlet with my dad. Sam West was Hamlet, and it was awesome. So I have one good anecdote about Shakespeare. Well, I've got a couple, but one is that me and my cousin went to see Ian McKellen's one-man show last year when it was on, and the second half of the one-man show is entirely him talking about Shakespeare and all the Shakespeare he's been in, um, and he gets the audience to name Shakespeare plays. So he said out loud, he went, I'm going to see how many Shakespeare plays we can all name. And I turned to Emily and I was like, I got this because I can name them all. So I just let other people shout out like all the ones, you know, like Hamlet, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, etc, etc. And then we got near the end and we got to down to like the last four ones that people don't know. So... It was down to us, like, four ones. I let a couple of people answer a couple of ones. And there was a bit of silence. He was like, oh, do we know the last two? I think he was trying to, hoping that people wouldn't know them. And so, really loudly, I shouted out, Timon of Athens. And he was like, yes. And he did a little story about Timon of Athens. And while he was doing Timon of Athens, I was like, oh my god, what is the last one? I could not, I was like, it's in my brain, it's in my brain. And just as he was about to finish talking about Timon of Athens, it came to me. And I shouted out, Troilus and Cressida. <laughs> And he was like, I have nothing to say about Troyes and Cressida. <laughs> and everyone around us was like, wow, good knowledge. Like, <laughs> nice work. Um, so not only have I interacted with Ian McKellen, but I went downstairs at the end and he had a bucket because he was raising money for charity. All the money he raised went to charity. And um, and uh, he had a bucket and we gave some money. And I said, it was me. I was the one that said Tim and Rathens and Troy and Cressida. And he was like, good work. And tapped me on the shoulder. And it was like, oh my God, you and touched me. So there's definitely a reason why I learned all those damn Shakespeare plays. So I could get touched by Ian McKellen. And You're like just- a band. Like a band nerd that knows all the B-sides of like... <laughs> Have you tried to name all the B-sides by... Um, I could do, I could do it for Nirvana probably. It's been a, I used, to, I definitely used to be able to do it. Um, what are you doing tonight, Dan? I am going to watch Taskmaster. Nothing interesting. And what Probably are you having do. for dinner? Uh, fish. We got a really Ooh. fresh fish like ages ago. It's not fresh anymore. It's been in the freezer for months, but I'm sure it'll be alright. Freezer just. Freezes time, right? It's just yeah, obviously. I mean, it could have been a fish from Shakespearean Thames water. <laughs> Hopefully that would be not. Pretty good. That would be pretty fresh. Um, yeah, we're having like rice with our rice cooker that you so kindly recommended to me. Very nice. And yeah, Matt's Matt's cooking. So 
Yeah, rice and mushrooms. Um, okay. Well, we'll see you next time. Please follow us on Twitter at Have You Ever Pod and also on Instagram. And subscribe wherever you're listening. And yeah. tell all your friends. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.